Welcome to another wonderful day celebrating the life of H.L. Mencken. And today is the actual birthday, um, and he would have been 135 years old. What would Mencken have said about that? <laughs> and I think it, we all have been wondering if you know anything about Mankin or have heard about Mankin or, and people who, you know, you're devotees, but the real, everybody's wondering now, in this election cycle, what would Mankin say? <laughs> there have been times, I must tell you, when I just, it just, it just gave me such joy to think about it. And so we are going to, and I hope someone will ask a question. David is a leader in his uh, profession, holding many organizational positions, including uh, serving as president of the Maryland Society of Professional Engineers and as president of the Land Development Council of Maryland. He has shared his experience and knowledge in lectures in dozens of universities at hundreds of professional conferences and seminars and symposia, and in more than 200 written articles. Uh, his accomplishments and knowledge uh, have been uh, recognized uh, by appointment to numerous boards and commissions and the uh, receipt of uh, many uh, awards and, and citations. But David's interests span far beyond his uh, profession. He is a community leader and, interestingly, a military leader. His interests in and knowledge of H.L. Mencken are deep and long-standing. Over many years, David and his lovely wife, Carolyn, have assembled one of the most impressive collections of original making materials in private, non-institutional possession. Today, he releases his fifth book about H.L. Mencken. This Renaissance man is also a musician. He was the pipe master for the Baltimore Police Department's ceremonial unit. David is the world's greatest Jewish bagpipe uh, player. <laughs> so it is my pleasure to present to you for the 2015 Mencken Memorial Lecture, David Stewart Taylor. Somewhere in the talk, he said that the famous H.L. Mencken had gone to Polly, and not one kid among the, the 2,300 there uh, had the foggiest idea who he was talking about. But something resonated in me, I think, and um, not long later I bought one of the day's books, and in it Mencken had a story, I think the Halls of Learning, if I remember correctly, uh, about his time at Polly, and he uh, really excoriated some of the teachers, and I thought that was great. And I was, uh, and I was hooked. 
And here comes the confessional uh, uh, part. So some years later, after I came back from college, I decided to do some research and publish an article on Mencken and his time at Poly. And I talked to Neil Jordahl, the, the uh, former director of humanities here, and the, uh, he was just a wonderful man. And I was a, a schmagegi. I was just a kid. And he let me into the old Mencken room, which was just down the uh, hall uh, from here. And Mencken saved everything. He must have known that he was going to be famous because he had all his paperwork from, from uh, you know, uh, from Poly. It was interesting. But after a while, I got bored. I was sitting in the room, and I got bored. And there was a closet. And so I tried it, and it wasn't locked, and so I went in. And in the closet, there was a box, and the box wasn't sealed. So I looked in the box, and in the box was Mencken's diary the original Mencken's unexpurgated diary. Well, I didn't know it was embargoed. I was a kid. And so I read it, and I actually published it. Okay, And Neil Jordahl got really angry with me. <laughs> and he, gave, he was really upset, and, uh, but I didn't know it was embargoed. And he gave me permission, nunk pro tunk, to um, publish it. But when I read the diary, the original diary, I was appalled by what I read. Um, and I was appalled, not for the reason you may think, I was appalled because Mencken had such bitter things to say about people who thought he was his friend, some of whom that uh, uh, I, I knew. And it was, um, uh, it was really very uh, unpleasant, but this was a private diary, uh, and people put down their private thoughts. But I didn't find anything anti-Semitic in the diary other than he used the word Jewess, a few times, which I thought was, you know, kind of graded on the air, uh, ear uh, a little bit. But I didn't find anything particularly uh, anti-Semitic. But be that as it may, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to introduce my colleague, uh, Victoria Ballestero, who's one of our engineers who's going to be working the PowerPoint today. And I especially forgot to introduce my wonderful wife, Carolyn. How I forget, I'm in such trouble, you can't uh, imagine. Um, and my son, Andrew, and my daughter-in-law, um, uh, Amy. Now, I don't want you to think that the Thalers aren't obsessed about Mencken, but my daughter's pug dog is named Henry, as in Henry Lewis Mencken, and, uh, and the dog, and Henry the dog, is just as pugnacious as his uh, namesake. But be that as it may, Henry Lewis Mencken had many uh, prejudices. He published six volumes of them, but he didn't seem particularly prejudiced against Jews. And nonetheless, the question of whether he was anti-Semitic or not has raged for more than 80 years. Mencken dominated American intellectual discourse in the 1920s. He attacked religious fundamentalism in Dayton, uh, Tennessee in 1926, and he struck a titanic blow against censorship in the Hatrack case uh, in Boston. But in Baltimore, the monumental city, there are no monuments to Mencken, nor schools named for him. There's schools named for everybody, people you never heard of, but none for Mencken, and his house on Holland Street is mostly shuttered. And this is partly due to the anti-Semitic and somewhat lesser extent racist taint that his reputation has uh, acquired. Now, it's somewhat of a mystery to me as uh, whether Mencken was in, why Mencken was anti-Semitic or not has aroused so much interest, because he was an equal opportunity insulter, or insulterer. I'm not sure what the word is. Here are just a few things he said about other groups. He called the Poles a gang of brutal ignoramuses, Norwegians uncouth yokels, 
The Dutch are money-grubbing and unimaginative uh, people with bad manners, and the whole race of Scots, vulgar and low-down, near the bottom of civilized races. Now, that I take personally. (laughs) Or how about this one? What are the characteristics that I discern most clearly in this type of man? One is his curious and apparently incurable incompetence. The other is his hereditary cowardice. And he was, of course, speaking about Anglo-Saxons. Now, I won't even, it would take another lecture if I got started on politicians whom he called rogues and vagabonds, frauds and scoundrels, except to mention my personal favorite, uh, Warren Gamaliel Harding, the 29th president of the United States, who Mencken said had the intellectual grade of an aging cockroach. (laughs) Now, Mencken was critical of organized religions, but his greatest scorn was reserved for the Baptists and Methodists whom he held responsible for prohibition. Here's what he wrote about them in the November 1924 American Mercury. They are wholly corrupt, rotten, and abominable. They deserve no more respect than a pile of garbage. Now, by comparison, the Jews got off rather lightly. And one really has to dig uh, for evidence of the anti-Semitism among Mencken's vast output. Although it seems trite to say nearly all of his best friends were Jewish. They included Philip Goodman, the man about town and Mencken's first publisher, who somehow managed to famously spell his own name wrong in defense of women. He was, like Mencken, a legendary lover of food and drink, with whom he often took the waters, as they said, in New Jersey. Now, other Jewish friends included Alfred Knopf, his longtime publisher, George G. Nathan, his partner in the smart set, the Mercury, and numerous other ventures, Louis Untermeyer, the poet and anthologist, and even Dr. William Rosenau, the long-term rabbi of Temple Oheb Shalom in Baltimore and professor at Hopkins, who was a close friend of Mencken's for more than 40 years and who collaborated with him on two supplements of the American language. There were also his friends from the Saturday Night Club, a group of Mencken cronies that met for nearly 50 years, and they played an hour of really bad music with Mencken on pack, uh, piano secundo. How do I know that it was really bad? I have a tape of it, okay? And it is really bad. <laughs> and then they went eating and drinking, usually at the Rennert uh, Hotel. Uh, this is uh, the night uh, prohibition uh, ended where Mencken was given the honor of the first drink. And the Saturday Night Club included Samuel Hamburger, Israel Dorman, and Louis Cheslock, violinist and professor of music at the Peabody. Now, many thought that Mencken's longtime girlfriend, Marion Bloom, was Jewish. She was small, dark, and she had a Jewish-sounding name, but she wasn't. And her conversion to Christian science after a stint as a nurse during World War I committed to uh, her breakup with Mencken. Now, just after his death in 1956, a selection of Mencken's notebooks entitled Minority Report was published. And the first copy was given to Louis Cheslock um, and inscribed by August Mencken, Mencken's brother, as follows. No man ever had better friends than uh, you to my brother, and I know he would have wanted you to have this first copy. This is it, August Mencken. Now, this is a famous portrait of Mencken uh, at his peak, which now presides downstairs in the uh, Mencken room. It was painted by uh, Nicole Schattenstein, also Jewish. Now, Mencken was often mistaken for being Jewish. 
He was invited to join Jewish clubs, and to his great amusement, he was listed during the 1920s in the Jewish who's who. Now, here's one particularly egregious example of his misidentification. This is from L'Action Française, which was a virulently anti-Semitic magazine and French uh, group, and this lists him as Le Juif Menken, the Jew Menken. Now, this is a photograph of uh, Mencken uh, in 1913, just as he was coming to national prominence at his desk at the Sun. Now, this is a fairly well-known picture. It's been previously published. However, this is a different version uh, uh, of it that I dug up at the Maryland uh, Historical Society, and it was inscribed to um, P.B. Perlman, LLB. Perlman was the court reporter for the Sun, but he was later solicitor general in the United States, and Mencken has written um, uh, on this. You'll notice on his hand, this is in Mencken's handwriting, he has written in Hebrew, kosher, kuf, shin, resh, kosher, right here. I don't think there's been an anti-Semite in the history of the world that ever wrote kosher on his own uh, uh, hand. And you can't you can't uh, see it um, here. He's written four words here that I'm going to blow up uh, for you in a minute. What this says is Ganoff, Schlepper, Schnorr, and Goy. <laughs> Thief, Sad, Saxbaker. And these are still funny Yiddish words that we might use um, uh, uh, today. Now, Mencken, uh, Mencken was a hoaxer, and he loved a good joke, especially a Jewish one. Here is a fake business card that he sent out. This is the Strictly Kosher Oriental Yiddo American Home Cooking Chinese Kosher Restaurant, Ming Aaron's proprietor. Uh, you can get the celebrated gefilte fish sandwich, uh, Lee Ginsburg's Shanghai Serenaders, and uh, the showcase, that's the ritual butcher, Reverend Mandolowitz, who does a little real estate and insurance on the side. <laughs> This is not what you would really expect from an anti-Semite. Now, in recent years, uh, after the publication of Mencken's diary, Mencken has been accused of anti-Semitism. And so the question is this. How could anyone who had so many Jewish friends and colleagues, who spoke a little Yiddish, could write a little Hebrew, who liked kosher food, who spent the high holidays at the home of his friends, and was remembered so warmly by so uh, many of them, possibly be anti-Semitic. And the complaint is that he used unkind and pejorative language about Jews. His, his crime, his alleged crime, isn't anti-Semitism as we usually think of it. He didn't kill or persecute anybody. He wasn't a Nazi. In fact, he even refused to join the German-American Bund, which was very strong in Baltimore, as many of you may know, uh, before the war. Uh, Mencken didn't refuse to hire Jews. Many of his employees and associates, especially in New York, were Jewish. He didn't fail to work with Jews. Many of his longtime colleagues were Jewish. He didn't fail to publish Jewish authors. The mercury is loaded with them. And, of course, he didn't fail to socialize with Jews because most of his best friends and drinking pals were Jewish. And he also didn't believe that Jews maintained a secret cabal to rule the world. The crime for which Mencken is accused is speaking ill of Jews, using unkind language, and not speaking out publicly against Hitler. Now, the recent charges are not new because charges of anti-Semitism dogged Mencken for nearly his uh, entire uh, career. 
um, particularly, but you can, we, you can really trace it back to where it began, which was after the publication of Treatise on the Gods in 1930. And the book was criticized in many quarters, but it was a single sentence that got all the attention. And it was this sentence. The Jews could be put down very plausibly as the most unpleasant race ever heard of. That isn't so terrible. You know, pretty tame stuff um, uh, compared to the Methodists who got uh, no more deserving of respect than a pile of uh, garbage. But it was this sentence uh, which set up a huge uproar. And Alfred Knopf was upbraided by some blood-sweating rabbis, as Mencken put it, but the offending paragraph remained unchanged through ten printings. Now, Mencken departed this veil in 1956. However, the terms of his will dictated that batches of his papers be unsealed 15 years, 25 years, and 35 years uh, after his uh, death. And so in 1989, his diary was unsealed and published this despite his specific instructions to the contrary. And I love the Enoch Pratt, but I think that publishing the private diary contrary to the uh, Mencken's instructions was not their finest uh, a moment. But be that as it may, the diary was published, and it was edited by Charles A. Fetcher, who had previously published a study of Mencken's thought. One particular comment by Fetcher reignited the storm. Fetcher said, this brings us to what is no doubt the most inexplicable and pleasant aspect of his personality as it is revealed to us in the diary. I refer to his feelings about Jews. Let it be said once, clearly and unequivocally, Mencken was an anti-Semite. Now this comment set off a huge brouhaha. Articles appear throughout the nation's newspapers, Good Mencken, Bad Mencken, and the New York Times said, racist and anti-Semitic, but still great, uh, um, uh, said uh, Newsday. Many jumped to the defense. Arthur Miller, Louis Untermeyer, Ralph Ellison, John Kenneth Galbraith, and Norman Mailer defended Mencken in a letter to the New York Times Review of Books. William Manchester, in a letter to the New York Times, argued that the slurs in the diary were set down in private at a time when racial epithets and jokes were commonly heard in polite, uh, in polite, polite society. Ain't that the truth? And Russell Baker, who grew up a block from Mencken during the period the diary was written, said that for a diary to be utterly free of any racist or anti-Semitic remarks in Baltimore in the 1930s would be utterly astounding. As at that time, Baltimore maintained a full lexicon of ethnic slurs. Many of his Jewish friends, especially Alfred Knopf, bristled at the charges and vigorously defended him. Karen Polwin, then a student at Towson University, published a spirited brief for the defense in Mencaniana, aptly entitled In Defense of Mencken. But despite all that, today Mencken's name seldom appears in the newspaper without any Semite appeared appearing somewhere nearby. Now, an example of this um, genre, uh, just one, is an article that appeared in the Baltimore Sun in June 2006. It's about a book auction by our friend uh, Chris uh, uh, Brady. Uh, and um, among, uh, in addition to some uh, Hitler uh, uh, memorabilia, uh, the auction was some letters uh, between Mencken and uh, Reverend Her Herbert Parrish. And the article states, you can hard to see it down here, but it says, the letters confirm Mencken's reputation as an anti-Semite. So the letters being auctioned 
the Sun says, confirm Mencken's reputation as an anti-Semite. Now, the auction, this is the auction catalog they're referring to, stated that two of the letters, quote, and it's a little hard to see on here, contain brief to lengthy anti-Semitic comments and concludes from a quote from Terry Teachout, that is not Mencken's anti-Semitism for which he will be remembered, but that he was anti-Semitic cannot now be reasonably denied. But let's examine the actual evidence. One of the letters, which is now part of the Robert Wilson collection in the Peabody uh, Library, this is the letter they're um, uh, talking about. This is an April 21st, 1934 uh, letter. Uh, Dr. Parrish, incidentally, was the Episcopal minister uh, who married uh, Mencken. And here's what it says. Um, the anti-Nazi bill is amusing indeed. All it shows is the singular stupidity of uh, the Jews. Now, it's unclear what anti-Nazi bill he's referring to. And this is supposed to be an anti-Semitic letter. But the bill probably has to do with the boycott of German goods that was proposed by Rabbi Stephen S. Wise in 1933. However, the boycott, which was intended to damage the German economy, was not universally supported and was opposed by many Jews, including many in Baltimore, some of whom had economic ties to Germany. It was also vehemently opposed by Rabbi William Rosenau of Temple Oheb Shalom, Wise and Rosenau had been close friends for years, but Rosenau's opposition to the boycott and the controversy surrounding it caused a long friendship to break up and they never spoke again. Rosenau, like Mencken, believed that a boycott would stir up more anti-Semitism in Germany, and while their views may have been wrong, they may have been naive, but they were hardly anti-Semitic. And there's clearly nothing anti-Semitic about this letter, once you examine it, and yet the Sun paper finds Mencken's reputation to be, quote, confirmed as an an anti-Semite, unquote. Now, the charges tend to fall into four uh, general categories. The single element that apparently most disturbed Charles Fetcher was Mencken's use of the term Jew. Here are some examples. 1524 Holland Street has been bought by some Jews. Lawrence Spivak is a young Harvard Jew. Simon Soboloff is a smart Jew. Now, I think this charge is easily dismissed. For identifying somebody by their uh, ethnicity was very common at the time. Temple Topics, which for many years was the newsletter of Temple Oheb Shalom, is full of examples during the 1920s and often uses the word Jew or Jew-S, which is very grating to our modern ears but was in very common usage at the time. Next, the most unsettling charge against Mencken is that he used the K-word. Perhaps six times in his, million, uh, in his many millions of words of output. Now, in the diary, Fetcher mentions an entry, which he did not use, of two Jewish businessmen who were referred to as dreadful kikes and a member of a firm of Jewish music publishers as prehensile kikes. However, kike is a word with a very specific etymology. It was initially coined by German Jews in the late 19th century as a derogatory term to describe the poor, pushy, newly arrived immigrants from Russia and Eastern Europe. The word suggests a cheap, low-class, ill-mannered, pushy or ugly Russian Jew. Now, Mencken shared this usage with many of his uh, Jewish friends. Next, Mencken's hatred of Roosevelt and opposition to entry into World War II has somehow become entwined with charges of anti-Semitism. 
As to Franklin Roosevelt, uh, clearly Mencken hated him. But he hated him, no question about that, and he hated, he hated him on multiple levels, personally and professionally. Roosevelt had famously humiliated him at a Gridiron Club dinner in 1934 when he gave a scathing denunciation of the journalism profession by quoting from Mencken uh, verbatim. But as Marion Rogers, who I'm delighted to see here, uh, hiding in the corner uh, today, uh, noted in her monumental uh, biography, Mencken the American Iconoclast, too much has likely been made of this, and Mencken was really opposed to Roosevelt's social programs, his pro-British anti-German bias, and what Mencken perceived as Roosevelt's abuse of executive power, his packing of the Supreme Court and the censorship of the press. Next. More recently, there has been a variation on the theme, and that is that Mencken must have been anti-Semitic because he failed to speak out publicly against Hitler and the Nazis after a visit to Germany in 1938. Now, a cover story in the March 31, 2006 issue of the Baltimore Jewish Times entitled The Silence of the Sage uh, excoriated Mencken for just that failing to speak out publicly against Hitler, and this, at least in my opinion, is the most serious charge uh, against him. Mencken's visit in 38 was on the eve of the Second World War and only four months before Kristallnacht. And the Nazis were fully in power, although their atrocities had really scarcely begun. Mencken was not in Germany on a professional visit, but rather to visit Loss, the home of his ancestors, but for an unusually acute observer, he was oddly mute. As Marion Rogers put it, he, quote, exhibited a stupefying naivete about Hitler and his ultimately aims, unquote. Although most of the horrors were uh, yet to come, the Nazi scheme was scarcely a secret. The Baltimore Jewish Times went so far as to write an obituary uh, for German Jewry in January of 1938 German Jewry's obituary, how Nazidom destroyed it in five uh, uh, years. And this article noted the devastating impact of Nazi anti-Semitic policy on the formerly vibrant German Jewish community. Now, Mencken wrote home from Germany that the situation for the Jews is very bad, and they've been driven out of many small towns and are concentrated in the cities, but his main comments were about the beauty of the countryside, the music, and, of course, the food. He noted that some shops were identified as being Jewish-owned, but he failed to mention the attacks on the Jewish owners. At the time, Warren Spivak, a founder of Meet the Press, wondered how anyone, least of all a journalist, least of all Mencken, could go to Germany in 1938 and not write about his impressions. Louis Cheslock wrote in his diary that Mencken had been inordinately uncommunicative about the scene under Hitler, and in March 1933, just after Hitler came to power, leaders of the Baltimore Jewish community held a rally at the Lyric Theater to protest the Nazi regime and to raise public awareness. Many noticed that Mencken had been silent about the situation in Germany, and so Dr. Harry Friedenwald, president of the Zionist Federation, Simon Sovolos, uh, president of the Baltimore branch American Jewish Congress, and Dr. Lewis Kaplan, famous educator and later chair of the regents of the University of Maryland, uh, they all called on Mencken, urging him to speak out. But Mencken rebuffed them. First, he didn't like to be pressured, and secondly, he argued that speaking out would stir up more anti-Semitism. 
Now, the accusations notwithstanding, Mencken did speak out publicly against Hitler several times, and even in the Baltimore Jewish Times, which 80 years later accused him of not doing so. This is an interview that appeared in the Jewish Times on September 29, 1933, well before the depths to which the Nazi regime would descend were understood, and here's how he described um, uh, Hitler. Hitler differs from the rest only because he is bolder and has a greater talent for mob oratory. Think of an amalgam of Vardaman, Hoaksmith, Tom Watson, Colonel Boward, Tom Heflin, and Billy Sunday, and the imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan thrown in, and you've pretty well imagined him. Well, that's a pretty good denunciation of Hitler in 1933, long before anybody else was uh, uh, doing it. Now, Mencken also denounced Hitler in the American Mercury during review of Mein Kampf, although the edition of the book that Mencken reviewed was translated, abridged, and expurgated. He wrote a denunciation of Hitler and the Nazis, comparing them to the backwoods demagogues like William Jennings Bryan, with which he was familiar. Mencken, however, did um, regularly denounce Hitler privately. This is just one of many uh, examples. And on June 6, 1935, Mencken uh, writes to David Kemper of Baltimore, who had written, asking why Mencken had not, had not written one word in regard to the Nazis or Hitler. And Mencken wrote back with this very insightful uh, letter, Dear Mr. Kemper, it goes without saying that I agree with you about Hitler and have pretty much said, said what you said in dozens of letters to German friends. It's depressing to see the good work of the years since the war blown up by so preposterous a monobank. My hope is that he and his hoodlums were passed quickly. It would be laboring to the obvious to denounce Hitlerism. Moreover, it is surely done sufficiently um, by other hands. I want you to see this. All this is for your private eye. So kind of the question here is why is Mencken denouncing Hitler privately but not publicly. Now, other than the early review of Mein Kampf and the Jewish Times article, Mencken wrote nothing publicly about Hitler. And it's almost inconceivable that while he was busily berating Roosevelt for not admitting Jewish refugees, he published not one word about Hitler causing the Jews to be refugees in the first place. <coughs> this is a terrible shortcoming and a serious blot on Mencken's character and reputation. But that's not the question. The question is why did Mencken fail to speak out more publicly about Hitler, and can that failure be attributed to anti-Semitism? And in order to understand his unsettling silence during the Second World War, it's necessary to understand his experience during the First. Before World War I, Baltimore was a very German city. Maryland and Virginia tobacco was very popular in Germany, and the North German Lloyd Line shipped tobacco to Bremen, where vast numbers of refugees, both Jewish and Gentile, came by return passage to Baltimore in the 1830s and 1840s. Perhaps 25% of the city population traced its roots to Germany, mainly Bavaria, and there was a vibrant German cultural community, and German was widely spoken uh, in the city. At the turn of the century, in 1900, there were five German newspapers, and Maryland law said that new laws had to also be published in German. That's how, that's how German 
uh, a city, Baltimore was at the time. Beginning in 1911, Mencken began to speak out in his freelance articles in the Evening Sun on behalf of German Americans. He simply thought that German culture was superior to English culture, and anyone who's ever eaten English food, I don't know, say bubble and squeak or something like that, or bangers and mash, I'm sure would uh, uh, agree with him. In a typical article in September 1914, just after the start of World War I, he stated that a British victory over Germany in this war would be a victory for all the ideals and ideas that I most ardently detest. He is what is now, two world wars later, a most rara avis. He was an Anglophobe. Now, once the United States entered the war in 1917, however, American opinion changed dramatically, and anti-German sentiment became frenzied, often stirred by virulent government propaganda. This is just... Um, uh, uh, two typical uh, World War I posters. The Germans were often called Huns and portrayed as inhuman beasts. And the sexual imagery in this particular one, the mad brute has just raped the virtuous um, uh, woman. And you see culture with a K, German uh, culture, uh, here with the ruins of Europe in the background. Very powerful propaganda, uh, this. In Baltimore... Uh, German Street was renamed Redwood Street. German clubs disappeared. The hamburger became the Liberty Sandwich. Uh, sauerkraut became Liberty Cabbage. Uh, German board persons changed their name from Schmidt to Smith and from Wolfsheimer to Wolf. And believe it or not, Columbia University banned the teaching of the German language. Now, as a result of the hysteria, the pro-German Mencken was essentially fired from the sun. His mail was opened and read by the government, and he was under surveillance and constant suspicion of being a spy. Even more ominously, the, the Espionage and Sedition Act of 1918 made it a serious crime to, to criticize the government or the conduct of the war. Now, most of us here, I think, have probably heard the expression that you can't shout fire in a crowded uh, theater. I think everybody's heard that. That's a limit on free speech. What most people probably don't know is where that comes from. And it comes, it's a opinion, uh, uh, it's a unanimous opinion of the Supreme Court written by Oliver Wendell Holmes in Shank v. U.S. in 1917. And Charles Shank was the secretary of the American Socialist Party, and he wrote a pamphlet opposing the draft. He just wrote a pamphlet opposing uh, the draft, and he was arrested and imprisoned under the Espionage and Sedition uh, uh, Act, and the Supreme Court upheld that imprisonment as there being a clear and present danger, like shouting fire in a, in a crowded uh, uh, auditorium, and the government at that time, you were not allowed to criticize uh, the war or the draft or the war uh, effort. And if you did, you could get locked up. Mencken knew this. Now, while Mencken was romantically pro-German and viscerally anti-British, he simply decided to write no more about Germany. Had he not, he would have been locked up. And he almost was anyway... Uh, as a German sympathizer, as a Freedom of Information review of his then uh, Bureau of, of um, Investigation file uh, revealed. He came very close uh, to being uh, imprisoned. 
Now, had the Nazis arisen in Britain instead of Germany, he no doubt would have been shouting denunciations uh, from the rooftop. But I think, therefore, that his failure to speak out uh, publicly in 1938 is clearly attributable to his experience in World War I, not wanting to get arrested, uh, rather than to anti-Semitism. But now the case for the defense. Number one, perhaps the most important essay that Mencken ever wrote on the subject of the Jews appeared in The Sun on January 1st, 1939. Mencken argued for the unlimited admission of German-Jewish uh, refugees into the United States at a time when every Western government, including the American government, was staunchly um, opposed. Even the New York Times and Walter Whitman, who was the most influential journalist of the day, and Jewish, were silent on the fate of German Jews uh, at the time. Number two, as uh, my colleague... Um, uh, Professor Gibson uh, pointed out um, uh, last year uh, Mencken was no racist and he was often a champion of civil rights decades before it was popular. Uh, Mencken raged against the Ku Klux Klan. He published African-American authors when no one else would. He supported the admission to, of Donald Murray into the then segregated University of Maryland School of Law. And famously, the last article he ever wrote in 1948 argued for the desegregation of the tennis courts at Drude Hill Park. Next, most of his friends and business associates was, was Jewish. Next one, he wrote a, a very obscure book. Only 25 um, copies were published. I've got the only one in private hands. If, <laughs> if anybody else has one, please see me, see me uh, uh, afterwards. Um, and this was a, a very pro-Zionist uh, tract in uh, 1935. He, he, was, uh, he, um, he had very positive things to say about the Jewish settlers in what was then uh, Palestine. And he even published several of the copies with a Hebrew title page. That says uh, Erez uh, Israel, and that's Hebrew for H.L. Mencken. Uh, and there's a copy of the one in Hebrew, um, uh, downstairs uh, in the uh, Mencken room. And uh, finally, it is generational chauvinism to judge the past by the standards, the norms, um, and the mores of the future. Um, it's looking, at the, as the expression goes, it's looking through the wrong end of the telescope. Standards of acceptable social behavior change and, and quickly. When I first gave a version of this speech, um, which I did several times to a group very much like this and about this same age nine years ago, I uh, asked everybody um, uh, how they feel about same-sex marriage. And nine years ago, to a person, everybody was opposed to same-sex uh, marriage. And in only nine years, not only have opinions changed, but the law of the land uh, has changed. And standards change uh, 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 quickly. Uh, on June 17th of this year, there was a terrible murder uh, of nine African Americans during um, a Bible study at the Emanuel AME Church uh, in Charleston, and almost immediately, the Confederate battle flag um, uh, became socially unacceptable. Uh, and almost everything Confederate became unacceptable. And as an example, uh, this appallingly racist advertisement 
did not appear in some white supremacist rag of the 1920s or 30s. This appeared in the March 11, 1960 issue of the Baltimore Jewish Times, you know, uh, um, which years later accuses Mencken of anti-Semitism. Uh, uh, this coincidentally was the same day that the Hoshel Cone department store was desegregated. Now Mencken was a man very much of his time and he should be judged by the standards of his time and not ours, and otherwise we could reject virtually all of human history on one currently unacceptable ground or another. So how does one explain the enigma of Mencken? The debate has roiled roiled back and forth, and as Professor Fred Hobson of University of North Carolina has noted, you could easily find 100 statements to prove that he was anti-Semitic and 100 statements to prove that he was not. Now, ironically, it seems to me that it is largely the Jewish scholars who have argued that he was not anti-Semitic and the Gentile scholars who have argued that he was. And there is an explanation, I think, for this paradox, but I believe it it requires understanding Baltimore at the time. Now, German Jews began arriving in Baltimore in the 1830s and 40s, along with other Germans, and by the turn of the century, they had succeeded amazingly well. They were often well-to-do, educated, cultured, and owned many of the department stores and garment factories in the town. They had also established many of their own social institutions, such as the Phoenix Club, the debutante balls of the Harmony Circle, and a country club, the Suburban, mirroring those of Gentile society. Now, although they initially settled in East Baltimore in the area around Lombard Street, In the 1890s, they removed out to the gracious homes and apartments in Utah Place and the Drew Lake Drive area. Now, the Jews of Russia and Eastern Europe had long suffered from abject poverty, but in 1881, Tsar Alexander II of Russia was assassinated, setting off a period of terrible persecution and one of the greatest human migrations in history. And beginning in the 1880, huge numbers of European Jews began to arrive in Baltimore. And like so many um, other immigrant groups, they were typically poor, uneducated, and uncultured. There were also uh, other significant differences between the groups. The German Jews were usually non-observant. In fact, men, many could say that reform, uh, reform Judaism, and along with Mormonism, are the only truly American original um, Uh, uh, religions. I've heard that argued many times. Uh, But the German Jews uh, were usually reformed, that is not particularly observant, and assimilated, and the new arrivals were often observant. And they initially even spoke different languages. The Germans spoke typically German, and the uh, uh, Russian Jews typically spoke Yiddish. Now, there were typically uh, significant class differences as well, but perhaps even more profoundly, and not well understood there was labor strife. This was just the time that the labor unions were really uh, rising. The German Jews owned many and uh, owned and ran many of the department stores, which they're largely credited with uh, inventing. And they also owned the garment factories, which was a huge business, the so-called needle trades. It was a huge business in Baltimore uh, beginning at the time of the uh, Civil War. The Russian Jews, however, were the labor. And the Russians often worked, they got off the boat and went right to work as uh, tailors. And they uh, often worked as um, in sweatshops and lived in very crowded tenements in East Baltimore, while management 
The German Jews lived uptown in the Tony sections along Utah Place. Um, uh, and also, this was the time when the labor unions were first uh, organizing, and labor strife helped widen the rift between the uh, groups. This is a group of tailors who walk off their jo- walked off their job in 1914 at Sonnenborn's in a very famous strike, which resulted in the first contract with the Amalgamated Clothing Workers Union. And so this is Sonnenborn's, the Packer Pratt uh, building. So there were two very different Jewish communities in the 1920s, uptown and downtown, rough versus cultured, educated versus uneducated, has versus have-nots, and labor versus management. And to the German Jews, the new arrivals, uh, not only were they scruffy, but they were seen as socialists and communists, you know, and radicals as uh, well. A few were in my family, and they were. So, um, <laughs> in fact, one even went back to Russia, but that's another uh, story. And so I think that Mencken's views and attitudes have to be judged in this context. While many of his closest friends, maybe all his closest friends, were Jewish, they were nearly all German Jews. And so how do we explain the paradox of Mencken? I think it's simply that he was a very bourgeois Baltimorean who shared many of the attitudes of his contemporaries. Now, needless to say, the German Jews were often hostile and somewhat prejudiced towards the new arrivals, and there was, of course, social snobbery. The Russian Jews were blackballed from the clubs and institutions of the Germans. And while I don't think you'll find any written evidence of it, everybody knows for sure that the Woodholm Country Club was founded because the Russians couldn't get into the uh, suburban, and the Mercantile Club was founded because they were kept out of the Phoenix Club. Now, the Holocaust put, any notion, put to rest any notion of German cultural uh, superiority, and it forged the Baltimore Russian communities into a single entity. But there's still vestiges of the old attitudes, um, and I'm sure we all remember some of them even in the Mencken Society. Now, Mencken was a friend with many German Jews and very much a, a part of the Baltimore Jewish community, which included Jews who were antagonistic towards their co-religionists. Kike was a word they used at the time, and it should not be surprising that Mencken occasionally used it as well. Now, with regard to Mencken's provocative language, I think much too much has been made of it. We forget, we, we analyze every word, and I think we take it too seriously. We forget he was selling books and newspapers, and much like uh, Ann Coulter, for instance, you know, or the pundits on uh, Fox News, he found that being outrageous, or Donald Trump, he found, that being, he found that being outrageous was particularly good for business. Now, the Anti-Defamation League of um, B'nai B'rith recently re- released an unprecedented study of global attitudes about anti-Semitism. And in native languages in 102 countries, it asked people whether they believed certain traditionally anti-Semitic statements were probably true, including that Jews have too much power over international markets, global media, and the U.S. government, that they don't care about what happens to anyone but their own kind, that Jews are responsible for most of the world's wars, and that Jews are more loyal to Israel than their own uh, uh, countries. Now, even though 73% of the respondents had never met a Jewish person, the study found that one in four adults worldwide, more than a billion people, are deeply infected with anti-Semitic attitudes. 
This includes 74% in the Middle East and North Africa, 25% in Western Europe, including 37% in France, 14% in Canada, and 9% in the United States. So I think there is um, plenty of genuine anti-Semitism in the world with which we should concern ourselves as well, as well as plenty of racism rather than concerning ourselves with what a professional pundit did not say in 1938. And finally, uh, Mencken did not characterize people as, uh, as we all tend to do. He was deeply influenced by the work of uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Nietzsche, whom he first introduced to American audiences, publishing the first book about Nietzsche in English, uh, The Philosophy of, of Friedrich Nietzsche in 1907. And in his work, Also Sprach Zarathustra, Thus Spake Zarathustra, Nietzsche introduced the concept of the Ubermensch, Ubermensch, which has been translated as Superman long before the arrival of the Man of Steel from the planet Krypton. But while Ubermensch has also been translated as Overman, a better translation is, I think, is really Superior Man, Ubermensch Superior Man. And that is how Mencken saw the world and how he classified individuals, as superior men and inferior men. And here's how he put it. To me personally, race prejudice is one of the most preposterous of all the imbecilities of mankind. There are so few people on earth worth knowing that I hate to have to think of any man I like as a German or Frenchman or Christian, Jew, Negro, or white man. This again in the Baltimore Jewish Times. And so, if you were wondering, still wondering, after carefully considering all the evidence and pondering the question uh, deeply and thinking about it deeply, in my opinion, H.L. Mencken was not an anti-Semite. However, as much as I like it to be otherwise, I seriously doubt that this will be the last word on Mencken and the Chosen. I'm quite sure that Henry is up there now on his 135th birthday, smiling down upon us, quite amused that we're still talking about him, for as he put it, <laughs> he liked to stir up the animals. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and it wouldn't be, go to the next slide, Victoria. And it would not be Mencken Day without a little advertisement. Um, we have some books for sale that uh, um, uh, we'll be very happy to have a book signing. Um, uh, a few, uh, I'd say about uh, seven years ago, I became aware that a opera by H.L. Mencken had been discovered in the archives of the Peabody uh, of the Peabody Conservatory. And so I went over and I, I asked uh, Roger Brunier, the head of uh, opera, to play it for me. And it was clearly the worst opera I ever could see. <laughs> well, actually I say that, but the truth of the matter is I've heard worse. But, uh, uh, but it was uh, pretty bad. And so we said, we have to publish it. Uh, we, uh, we have to produce it. And so we produced, produced it. Some of you uh, uh, may remember it was a hoot. And we published a book uh, called The uh, Artist. It has a fantastic essay by Marion Rogers on the Saturday Night Club 
uh, and an essay by um, uh, Roger Brunyate on the opera. It has uh, the libretto, so to speak, of the uh, opera, as well as the sheet music, the, the theme song uh, for the Saturday Night Club, I Am, I Am an American. So uh, 10 bucks, and Marion and I will be happy to sign it uh, for you. Uh, in 1966, and then again in 1972, Betty Adler, the legendary uh, librarian here, uh, tracked down all the copies of Ventures into Verse. Ventures into Verse was Mencken's first book, I think 1903, if I remember uh, correctly, and it was a book of poetry. Mencken was, of course, a, um, uh, a prose uh, writer. It's the worst it's got to be the worst poetry ever published. So, uh, so Professor uh, Rich, go back, uh, Victoria. So Professor Richard Trader and I had fun. The, she she passed away. Uh, the last edition was 1972. We had fun trying to find the rest of them. Only 105 copies uh, had been published. Um, uh, Mrs. Adler, Ms. Adler found 42. We found 11 more, and it was a lot of fun tracking them down. Uh, I acquired four of them along the way. There are only 13 in private hands, and so this is now the third edition of, of Ventures in Diverse. Ten bucks, I'll be happy to sign it for you. And finally, Victoria, um, uh, we have published, uh, we release uh, today uh, a new book, uh, Mencken's Prejudices Debunked, which include my talk today on whether uh, Mencken was anti-Semitic, Professor Gibson's talk last year on whether he was racist, and a wonderful introduction by Marion Rogers, and the three of us will be very happy to inscribe your copies. All proceeds of all the books go to the Mencken Collection at the library, 20 bucks. So thank you all very much, and I'll take some questions. Good. Before, we, um, before you ask your question, I just want to invite all of you to come downstairs. There will be a reception in the poll room, and we will be selling the books in the hallway. And as David said, he and Marion and Larry will be uh, autographing them for you. So I'm going to hand the microphone, and we want you to use the microphone because we're, podca- we're taping this for podcasting. So this lady had her hand up first, and then if you'll hand the microphone to that gentleman back there. Hello. Um, I just wanted to remind everyone that Sheldon Richman gave a talk. Uh, he's a, a libertarian um, economist, I believe, writer, about um, Mencken trying to bring Jews to the United States during um, World War II, and he made a similar argument. And um, it was also the lady who took part in the famous tennis match that got that was the uh, that produced Mencken's last column. This gentleman. The music that you refer to as being very bad music, the Saturday Night Club, um, is, is your standard very high? Would most people here feel that way? <laughs> but weren't, weren't, no. <laughs> weren't there musicians there that were professionals? Uh, yes, uh, uh, absolutely. I mean, Louis Cheslock was a fabulous violinist. Uh, all, you know, it's an empirical, this is an empirical analysis. I have the tape. It's unbelievably bad. What <laughs> I think I have the only tape. Uh, uh, I got it from uh, Mr. Cheslock's uh, son, 
uh, when we did the opera. I think it's the only tape at the Saturday Night Club. It's one of the Beethoven's, uh, a movement of one of the Beethoven symphonies. It's um, easily the worst you've ever heard. Yes, sir. Uh, two questions. You said you did not want to repeat your Christopher Hitchens story, but I would implore you to repeat it afterwards okay. to those of us who haven't heard it. Um, Secondly, I, it was a few years ago at this event that I met a, a Dutch man, and I asked how he got interested in Mencken, and he said, well, it was as a schoolboy in Nazi-occupied <coughs> Holland that it was on the curriculum because of really? its intense anti-Americanism. And I'm just wondering if you have any... Uh, well, actually, if that gentleman is here tonight or today, it would be great if you could introduce himself. But um, do you have any instances of the Nazis making use of Mencken? Marion, can you help me with that one? A, a German scholar named Helmut Winter, who I'm sorry to say is now deceased, um, did, did point out in, in one of his publications that was published in Germany a good seven years ago that there was a, uh, a Nazi newspaper that did use Mencken, uh, and, again, and again it was because of the anti-American things that, that Mencken had said, and they, they cashed in on that. So, but that was just a very, um, I mean, a very obscure little example that he had actually found. Anyone? I think they thought he was Jewish, so. In fact, I, in fact now that I'm thinking about it, they thought Mencken was Jewish, uh, and he is um, uh, uh, criticized in certain Nazi publications. Sir? In reading uh, 20th century uh, American novelists uh, of the first half of the 20th century, people who were championed by Mencken, such as Ernest Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald, and Thomas Wolfe, uh, one encounters some very unsympathetic Jewish characters in these uh, books. And I was wondering whether you think there's a prevailing anti-Semitic strain in American literature pre-World War II. Professor Betts? Where are you? You want to answer that? <laughs> well, uh, in the first place, I don't think he really uh, read much of Hemingway uh, or even the view. And I think by that time, he did, he did review uh, uh, Scott Fitzgerald. He wasn't very good at him, but he's an uh, American novelist in the first place. And he, he uh, stopped writing literary reviews in the 20s. And, when he was talking about novelists in the 30s, he was still writing about them. When he went on to cultural criticism, so the British religion, and so forth, after the American Revolution, he got his full of literature writing about the largest, about many really bad novels for the smart set. That's how he did it, going to the literature. Anybody else? Well, my opinion nine years ago was that he was a little bit anti-Semitic. But as I got into it, uh, you know, for all these reasons, you know, uh, uh, Hitler's off the, here, here's the anti-Semitic dial. Hitler's off the uh, a chart and Mencken's down here, you know, as a, uh, a one. Um, uh, but as I thought about it, I, I really, I, I really came to two conclusions. The 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 
worst criticism against him is that he didn't speak out during the 1930s. And there's a postcard I didn't use that uh, Marion um, uh, unearthed of Hitler uh, shaking hands with, uh, 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 with some German children at Birch's uh, Garden. And, uh, and, uh, and, the, and the postcard says, I bet you can't find one like this of Stalin. So there, uh, so I could not understand why he wouldn't, uh, uh, the Jews were being persecuted in 1938. It was no secret uh, what the Nazis were uh, up to, although the concentration camps hadn't really gotten started. This was the most acute observer of the human experience who never had a thought that he didn't publish, okay, that he didn't, that he didn't write down. Uh, that's all he did, uh, you know, all day except on Saturday nights. And why didn't he say anything? And then I sort of, I sort of uh, figured it out. It was the Espionage and Sedition uh, Act. Um, if he had said anything, he would have been uh, imprisoned. And, um, uh, and he was fired from the sun, uh, uh, you know, uh, essentially. And I, think that, and I think that's really the punchline of my talk and of really reanalyzing it over the uh, uh, last nine years. The fact that he used the, the word kike, okay, come on, everybody. That's what, in the 20s and 30s, um, it was a much less sensitive time. If you look at the, if you know anybody from the, if you remember maybe your grandparents, if you read the literature, WAP, Bohunk, you know, that, that was the language, that's how people talked in the time. Uh, at that time, it was acceptable social uh, behavior. I don't think that we can use the standards of our time, especially how quickly they're uh, 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 changing to apply to the standards of the 1920s and 30s. That's why I changed my opinion. Sir? Yeah, I think there's another plausible explanation about the 1938 situation that the Americans love to speak out. In those days, in 1938, the war drums were just starting to beat, okay? If you took a strong stand against Hitler and what was going on in Germany, where would it lead? It would lead to the United States siding with England, and you would have to use force, i.e. World War II. And I can't imagine Mencken being on the side of a pro-English a pro military operation to invade Germany. And I don't think he ever was, if I'm not mistaken. So looking at it at that time, it was just at the beginning when England was seeking help from the United States. And where does it... Where does it end? Well, it would end in war, and I don't think Mencken would have supported that. Well, I think you're right. Mencken was vehemently opposed to our entry into the in, into the war. Many people were. There was the night of uh, of Pearl Harbor. There was a big anti-war rally going on in uh, 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 Pittsburgh. Um, and, and the other thing is, I think he was embarrassed by Hitler. He was so pro-German. Baltimore was pro-German, and then we all became pro-British. You know, after two world wars, we all, everybody, all the Americans became uh, pro-British. I think Mencken was embarrassed what was going on in Germany, and he just didn't want to talk about it. That's my personal opinion. There are certainly other opinions. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Did Mencken uh, ever have any commentary on the American, the America Firsters? Marion? Where is she? I can't. 
Did he ever write about? Did he ever write about it or say anything about it? I remember vaguely some letters that exist about that, um, but I couldn't quote them to you now. So that's that mention. There might be something in the diary about that. I I can't remember anything. Anybody else? Uh, yeah, I didn't quite understand your point, though, about why would denunciations of Hitler implicate the, the Sedition Act? That would be a pro-war approach, as the doctor just suggested, a justification for war. And, and I believe there were Jewish writers and scholars who were supporting intervention at that time precisely because of Nazi persecution. So it seems more likely to me the, the doctors uh, who just spoke earlier, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your name, that his, uh, that seems to be the motivation. He didn't want to lend political support to a war that he was opposed to, not a fear of per prosecution, because it would be a pro-war sentiment, not an anti-war sentiment. I think he was afraid, he was viewed as pro-German, as a German sympathizer, and I think he was just afraid. He, was, he, he had clearly decided he wasn't going to write about Germany. He wasn't going to say anything about Germany. And that's what you see in the letters. He, writes, he, denounces, he denounces Hitler privately in the letters and then really says, basically, why can't they go back to the, um, you know, the, he, he hopes for the monarchy, going back to the monarchy at, uh, 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 in Germany. I think he just decided it was too dangerous. He wasn't writing anything about it. Privately, he was opposed to Hitler. There's dozens of letters that I've dug up. He but, just, the question is, why wouldn't he say anything publicly? But not so opposed that he would support war to, to resolve that problem. No. He was not going to support, support war against his beloved Germany. He hated England. He loved Germany. He was opposed. As were many, you know. Um, and, we, and we see it with the hindsight of the Holocaust and the Second World War. Before the war, there were many people, in fact, I would say most public opinion in America opposed our entry into World War II. That really only changed with Pearl Harbor. And how did we get, how did we get into war with Germany? Does anybody know? Did we declare? Germany declared war on us. We never. Germany declared war, the day after, two days after Pearl Harbor, Germany declared war on us. We didn't declare war on Germany, sir. Uh, a little bit of acceptance. Okay. Peace, I believe, started in June of 1941, when American ships were authorized to fire on German ships uh, after the sinking of the Booth of James. So the run-up to war was a little more than, than uh, suddenly available on I think it's a good, I think we could debate if we wanted whether had not uh, a, a but for uh, Pearl Harbor and Germany declaring war on us, whether we would have gotten involved in the war. There was very strong American sentiment after the First World War of not getting involved in the second. Colonel. German. He was German? German. He wow. was German. Wow. And he was romantically, chauvinistically German. Anybody else? Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Anybody else? Sir. Uh, just to, uh, it may, may have already been 
said. But uh, I, and I'm far from an expert on anything, but I would, I would put a lot of emphasis on the experience of the United States in World War I and how it influenced uh, Mencken's view. And I think he uh, initially at least said, I don't want to in any way be complicit in this kind of uh, anti-German fever. You know, you had the Dachshunds were sausage dolls and sauerkraut were liberty, with liberty cabbage and so forth. It was like the freedom fries, I and mean, I guess there would be dry fries in Germany. So, I, I, you know, again, for whatever that's worth, I would just like to bring that out. Here's my, there's lots of opinions. It's what makes it so much fun. Here's, here's my real point. I do not think that his failure to speak out uh, in 1938 was due to anti-Semitism. That's my real point. And on that note, I thank you all. There's snacks downstairs, and we'll be very happy to sign some books.